where he said, If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. So he shows we're to make a very great effort <clears throat> to be at peace with everyone we possibly can be at peace with. With that thought in mind, I'm going back to Amos 3. And we're going to discuss this idea of peace at what cost some more today because there are quite a few scriptures I meant to get to last week and I got bogged down in Romans 12 and barely made it through it. So we'll try to move along today. Anyway, Amos 3, these are prophecies for this end time for the church here at the end and for our nation here at the end. He says, Hear this word that the Eternal has spoken against you, O children of Israel. Now, right there shows that God is speaking against Israel in this chapter. Now, is that the way to peace? <laughs> when you speak against somebody, does that create peace? Let's go on and have some comments. I've spoken against you, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Mitzrayim, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You're the one that I made close acquaintance with, the only ones I've known. He knew of all the other nations, but he did not establish a relationship with the other nations to truly know them in that way. He says, you're the only ones. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. There's not going to be peace, he says, between you and me. You're going to be punished. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Ideally, total peace all the time is desired. But when there's disagreement, <coughs> people can't get along and they can't walk together. Because they're out of step with each other. Then he uses some examples. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? A lion will roar when he has prey, or is about to kill sometimes, uh, to brag. To let everybody know around that, hey, I've been successful. But unless he's successful, he won't. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? <laughs> no, he's, what's he got to brag about? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? If there's not a snare there, he's not going to fall in it. So God is saying, these things happen for a reason. And if there's not a reason... It won't occur. If a bird doesn't get caught, then there's not a problem. He says, shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? You put snares out there to catch something, but sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes it does. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? So there's cause and effect. If the people hear the warning of a trumpet, they're going to be afraid. 
Is there an attack coming? What's going on? Why is this warning being given? God is establishing here that he's going to punish them, as he said up there, but it's not going to be for no cause. There's a cause for it. There's a purpose in it. Shall there be evil in a city, and the eternal has not done it? He says in Isaiah 45, I make peace and create evil. So sometimes God sets people against each other. Sometimes God sets Satan the devil against people. There's cause and effect. God made laws. He said, walk this way. And if you don't keep those laws and you walk a different way, then in one sense, God created the trouble that you run into by making a law. If there's no law, there's no sin, right? But if there is a law and you sin, you break it, then in one way, God is responsible for you sinning because he's one that made the law and said it's a sin to break it. Now, I'm not going to blame him for my sins. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. But he's the one who made the rules. And if we break the rules, we're in trouble. And that's what this whole context is about. You broke the rules, you're going to be punished. So God is behind the punishment that's coming. That's really the point that's being made. The law was broken. Now God is going to punish. So he's establishing the legitimacy of what is about to come upon them. Surely, verse 7, the eternal God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So here's Amos, who's a fruit gatherer, and God told him, I want you to go tell this people what's happening. So he did. Oh, God was warning them through Amos. Now we're at the end time, and Amos did not just prophesy back then, but his words were written down for those upon whom the ends of the world will come. And that's you and me. So God is not doing this punishment on the church or on the nation or ultimately the whole world without speaking of it quite clearly ahead of time for those who will hear and listen. So he says in verse 8, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The eternal God has spoken, who can but speak or prophesy? If God has said it and it's going to happen, are you going to talk against it? What good is that going to do? won't do you a bit of good because... It's coming. We've seen it come on the church now. Well, Amos was right about the church, wasn't he? Spiritual Israel. And now we're seeing it coming on our nation. It's arrived. It's not complete yet, but it's arrived. It didn't come on the church and be over in two days either when we began to get spewed out, did it? It's taken quite a long time for it to reach its fulfillment. And the gathering will begin soon. Now, it's taken some time for all this trouble to come on the nation. It's leaned out as a wall, and now it's starting to fall. 
And the fall itself, once the leaning stops, happens pretty fast, and I think this will. But God is warning here. How many people are reading this and listening? Not very many. So he says in verse 9, publish it. Let, it, let people know. And uh, end of verse 9, uh, talk to the people of Samaria, that's Israel, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. Do we have tumult in the midst of our land today? I'd say so. Do we have people being oppressed by being told they have to stay at home and wear two masks, they can't go to work? Yeah, there's a lot of oppression already. And it's just getting worse day by day by day. So, chapter 3, verse 10, or verse 9 of Amos are here, coming to pass. We're not in 1953 waiting for 1972. We're here now, and it's here now. For they know not to do right, says the Eternal, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. All kinds of mischief being planned in palaces and homes. Therefore, thus says the Eternal God, an adversary that shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down your strength from you, and your palaces shall be spoiled. So we'll have enemies. Round about the land. Do we have Antifa? Do we have Black Lives Matter? Do we have politicians who are saying we need to be incarcerated or killed? Is this true or not? It's here. And we're going to be brought down. No strength left. And the palaces spoiled. Thus says the Eternal, as the shepherd takes out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. We think we're safe, we think we're secure at home in our bed or on our couch, but we're just going to be pieces left over after the lion tears. We're not safe at all. And it's beginning, we're beginning to realize our safety is quite threatened. I just read about one lady that, uh, she's in medical training. I think she already has her A degree at least. And, uh, she was pregnant, took the vaccine. Three days later, she had a miscarriage for no apparent reason. Are we oppressed? Is her baby like the ear of a sheep or a dog's leg? Yeah, I'd say so. And she said she's afraid to say anything because she's afraid she'll lose all of her accreditation in her job. Is she oppressed? I'll bet she feels oppressed today. Hey, I lost my baby and I can't accuse anybody. I can't say anything. She already said too much. I don't know how long she'll live, <laughs> you know. We're there. Hear you and testify in the house of Jacob, says the eternal God, the Lord of hosts, 
that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So he's not going to stop just with punishing and pressing people. Uh, the false religions are going to have their uh, citadels torn down as well. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the eternal. So here we are in our wealthy nation. Some people have two homes. Some people have three, four, five, six homes. Winter house, summer house, snowbirds, we call them. They're going to lose them both. They're going to lose it all. Their houses, our McMansions, are going to be uninhabited because we're going to be killed, having thought we were safe on our couch or our bed. I could go back to Isaiah 5 and show you the same thing, that all these fine homes we're building are going to be taken away from us. won't have them anymore. The Fed, not a government institution, but we call it the Fed, it's a private banking, owns one-third of the mortgages in this nation. They bought them up. And when people don't have jobs and people can't make payments, they are going to foreclose on all those houses and Americans won't have couches or beds anymore. Amos is right on point. Now, what's my point here overall? The point is, if we're sinners, we can't walk in agreement with God. And He is going to do something to make peace. And if it means an awful lot of people are going to be dead instead of disturbing the peace or making war, that's what's going to happen. And He's already passed judgment. So God in one way, will not make peace without heavy cost. And yet, on the other hand, even though this violence is being directed and comes from him because of sin, he has a purpose in it because he intends, ultimately, to have perfect peace. And what he is going to do to get to that point is going to kill all but, I think, 100 million people on the face of this earth before he's done. And if he didn't intervene in time, there would be no one left alive. He intends on living in peace throughout eternity. He's not going to have a war with Satan Anymore. He's going to put him away where he cannot influence anybody. So that'll create an awful lot of peace. God will have peace. Now he told us, if possible, with all that lies in you, make peace with all men. Now that is his advice to you and me. Now, what he is going to do is make peace with all men. That's what he's going to do. 
He does not tell us to do anything that he will not himself do. But what it takes to get there is going to be very hurtful because people just will not walk together agreed with God. They have their own way of doing things. So he won't walk with you unless you agree with him. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, a little more instruction specifically with the church. 1 Corinthians 5, this one you're pretty familiar with. This was that situation where there was incest within the church, and the people of Corinth, who had a low moral standard in any case, and this was going on, and they were so conditioned to fornication and adultery and even incest and so on, that uh, it didn't bother them, or at least not very much, not enough to do anything about it. In fact, they kind of thought, okay, you know, they, we got to the place even in the church of God here in the end time, the so-called Philadelphia church, it wasn't that, it was Sardis, where there were people who had key clubs. They'd get together church members to fellowship and at the end of the party everybody would have thrown their house keys or their car keys, whichever it was in a hat or bowl, whatever and then you went and picked keys out of the hat to see who you're going home with this was being done in the church of God a lot of the youth groups turned out that they had district-wide uh, weekends together with the uh, the single. And they went there looking for someone to lay down with. That was kind of the goal and the purpose. Not just to find a legitimate mate, but somebody to lay down with. So we can talk about the Corinthians all we want to, but this was going on in the Church of God. And in some cases, the ministers were even involved or turning a blind eye to it. I'm not sure that was God's church anymore. <laughs> some of this stuff started coming out afterward. Anyway, that was going on in Corinth. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. We know it. He said in verse 6, your glorying is not good. You, you shouldn't be overlooking this sin. You shouldn't be... Uh, even fellowshipping or being involved with people who were doing it. So he told them, that's sin. You're not to be at peace with that man at any and all costs. In fact, since that sin is there, he directed them very clearly to put that person away from them, to put them out of the church, to have nothing to do with them, not to even eat with them, down at the end of verse 11. Not to have any fellowship. Stay away from somebody who was doing that. So, it didn't lie within them to be peaceful to this man because he was breaking God's law. That's why we don't have fellowship with the world. They're breaking God's law. 
And it would lead us to break God's law if we fellowship with them. Sometimes we have to make the choice of staying away from family, from friends, because they could lead us into sin. If they're in the world, our relationship even with our own family, we need to be very careful about and maybe even stay away from some of them who are in the depths of sin because we could be led into that ourselves and miss out on the kingdom of God just because we want to be close to family. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son and with each other. Our true family is church members. That's whom God says to fellowship with. Very clearly there in Second John. First or second. We have to be careful. These people, Paul warned to be very careful. So they actually did put the man out. And then they got self-righteous about it. And when the guy quit sinning, they wouldn't let him back. <laughs> they said, now wait a minute. You weren't supposed to compromise with sin. Get, it aw- get away from it. Now he's quit sinning. And he is a member. Now fellowship with him. Oh. <laughs> we have trouble getting it right, don't we? <clears throat> there's a time to make peace. And there's a time not to make peace. Not at all costs. Not at the cost of accepting sin among us. We're to put that out. And when repentance occurs, we forgive and we accept back with open arms. Because we don't hold grudges. And we don't remind them of it three, five, ten years later. Because they repented. They quit it. They stopped it. And when they stop it, it no longer exists. We move on. And then we can live in peace. But as long as we... I mean, if this guy came to church and somebody reminded him every week, I remember six months ago when you were doing that, that had been awful tough for him to be there. But if they forgot about it and accepted him back in love, there could be peace. Now, what was the cost of peace here? The cost was cutting a member off until they repented and then transplanting them back when they did. That was the cost. First of all, they were accepting of sin, and then they were so self-righteous themselves that they were sinning by not accepting someone who had cleansed himself and repented and stopped his sin That just showed their own self-righteousness. That in itself is a sin. Worship of self rather than God and his law, which says forgive. Right? That's God, is forgiveness. So you move on and you don't hold grudges or anything of the kind. So there was a cost here for the church in Corinth to achieve peace between themselves and someone who was sinning. They paid the cost in both cases, at the beginning and at the end of the situation. 
So there's a good practical example of what can and should be done. Now let's go to Second John. Second John. And I'll go down about verse 10, I think it is, or 9. Uh, verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, receives us not. So there will be sometimes some who have attitudes, grudges, resentment, whatever it might be, He says, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he does, was still doing. He was still talking. Uh, John was getting reports. Prating against us with malicious words, resentful, hateful, bitter, angry words, and not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren and forbids them that would and cast them out of the church. So this was somebody who was an authority there, very possibly an elder or a minister, who had some real problems <laughs> that, it, that he was dealing with. He says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that does good is of God, but he that does evil has not seen good or God. So here he's saying that a difference has to be made. If, if someone is creating that kind of trouble, they shouldn't be there. I'm in third John, aren't I? That isn't where I intended to be. It's, it's the same lesson, really. Uh, not to get along with someone unless they were doing what they ought to be doing. Let's go back where I intended to be. I turned the page and I was looked at verse 9 and I was on the wrong spot. He says in verse 8, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have worked, but that we receive a full reward. We've learned a great deal. We're still learning. And we're to be very, very careful that we don't let them slip away. And a lot of people have done that in this time in the church in the last 10, 20, 30 years. They've let a lot of things slip away that we understood and knew and were taught and get out on our own and they begin to slip away. We begin to compromise a little. We begin to lean on our own understanding a little. I've seen people like that over the years and if they're off to themselves, they essentially don't grow. Not in the way that they should. They might grow a little, but they don't grow much. And in fact, things begin to slip. I've been myself, uh, places where I was away from brethren and away from the church for an extended period of time, and not being reminded all the time and seeing people all the time and iron sharpening iron, some things that I was always considered very important were kind of less important or they began to slip a little. And, and I realized it's hard to grow if you're not connected closely to the tree. And that's why Paul said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together so much the more as you see the time draw near. We need each other. 
This is our spiritual family, which is far more important than our physical family. Now, over the last ten years, I spent a lot of time talking about that very thing. That people will put their children ahead of God, ahead of the church. God says do that. Yeah, but my children. And some of them followed their children here. And when their children left, they left. Not because they didn't believe what is here, but because they valued their physical children ahead of God and His children, spiritually speaking. And they are in danger of losing out having done so. And Paul said, don't you do that. Do not do that. You cannot be an independent Christian and expect God to truly be with you and to stimulate growth in you. He made us to be close and to be together. Did you feel that the other night, Thursday night? We were all, most of us, nearly all of us there, we could be there, supporting Shirley. We're all crowded in, wanting to be there because our sister was in deep, deep trouble and death was very near. There was a closeness. There was a bond. There was a fellowship. Because she loved us and we loved her. And she's one of God's children, and we felt, to some degree, her pain and her suffering. Now, that's the way God wants us to be. Not to get together more and all the time, I don't mean that. But we are to be together, and we are to support one another and help each other and strengthen one another. And one by one, people went over to her and gave her encouraging words and Told her God was with her and the various things that we say. and She was hearing it. You might not have thought so, but she was hearing it all. A letter was read to her yesterday morning from her grandson. And she couldn't talk by then. She was only within three or four hours of death when it was read to her. About three hours. And yet she reacted a little. It was very obvious she had heard it. So the night before, she was hearing everything you said. You know, and where she was, knowing she was near death, she couldn't help but have known that. It had to be encouraging to her. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for, to love one another and to strengthen and help each other as best we can. So going on down then, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any to you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. Don't even wish them well as you turn them away and don't let them in. If they don't have these doctrines that are biblical, that we understand, 
You're not to associate with them. God wants you and me in his kingdom. And to get there, we need to be close to him and close to his people who understand his doctrines. Now, whether this is talking about someone coming in your front door or back door, or someone coming in on your stereo or your television, that has to be considered as well. How do you listen to a radio or a television preacher when he has not the doctrine of God? He has false doctrine. And you kind of like to hear his preaching. He's a good speaker. Or he says something good once in a while. God forbid! We're not to listen to this world's preachers. What did we just read back in Amos? He's going to tear down the horns of Bethel. The false religion, he's going to tear down and he's going to kill all the preachers. That's what God's going to do about it. Do you have a kill switch on your TV or something to change the channel? What about ministers of God, so-called, from the church, who aren't preaching the real truth, the doctrines of God? You can get your mind divided so very easily when you're listening to one say this and this one say something else. It's dangerous. I've seen people do it. I've had them, seen them have trouble. Now, did not God say he would send Elijah the prophet and he would restore all things? Now, I think that Herbert Armstrong was a type of that. He wasn't the final one, but he was a type. The former temple and then the latter temple following on its heels, which will be built very shortly now. And he restored an awful lot of truth that just wasn't around. He said many, many times the real truth of God had not been preached for 1,900 years. Now, there may have been a few people through the Middle Ages and here and there who had some truth, knew about the Sabbath, and we found a few maybe who were even keeping the holy days. But they didn't have the body of truth the way Herbert Armstrong was taught it and preached it to us. But he didn't have all of it. He had a lot of it. And what he had of it that we followed helped us along in developing a relationship with God. Now here at the end, he said he's going to send two that are going to teach us and pour out the oil there in Zechariah 4 to us. And you know what? 90% of the church are going to turn a deaf ear to it. Ninety percent. Actually, a little over ninety. It'll be a small tie, a small tenth, who will actually listen to the ones God sends to teach them. We better find out where they are, and we better get involved. Because they're the only ones that are going to be teaching this doctrine... And all things will be restored. 
Now, we've learned some things here in the last years about the Passover and various other things. The calendar, we've learned a lot of things. I don't doubt but what we've got an awful lot more to learn. Does that mean we're unchristian? No. What we have learned so far, we're trying to follow the best we can. And failing every day to one degree or another. But we have more to learn. And we need to be teachable. And we need to find out where God is working. And we need to get involved there. Because those are the only ones that are going to be protected. They're the only ones God is going to oversee. The rest are going into the tribulation. And they are going to die there if they are not part of the gathering that God makes. We must be there or we are going to die in the tribulation. All these little groups and big groups, unless they accept the teachers that God sends, are going to die. And that includes over 90% of those who claim to be Church of God members today. They will no longer be Church of God members once they die in the tribulation. Now, I think Zechariah indicates that about a third of them will probably repent before they're killed. But they're still going to die. I wish all would repent, and so does God. But you know, we can be pretty stubborn and pretty self-righteous and think we can do it on our own. No, we can't. God says so. And here he says, if they bring any other doctrine than what we are being taught by those whom God has sent, don't receive them. Don't listen. Don't pay any attention. Get it out of your house. Is that clear? Is that That's not too hard to understand, is it? I I think it's written pretty simply. Pretty simply. I've read that scripture when having to disfellowship people 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Because God said if they don't have this teaching, they're not teachable. For some reason, they won't accept it because they don't like it for whatever reason. Then back off from them. Now, we don't all understand everything, no. So, you know, there there are going to be things we don't all agree on yet. No two people think exactly the same. But we're supposed to be working in a direction, aren't we, toward peace. And the only way we can have peace with God is if we do everything His way. And the only way we can have peace with His people is if we... Follow his way. All of us. And if anybody is rebellious against that, then it's really hard to walk with them. Now what does God say about sin? Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. That's the penalty for sin. Now if we can justify our sins this way or that way or whatever and keep them, then we're going to have to die for them. If we repent of them and ask for forgiveness, then Christ's sacrifice is applied for us. But 
if we are stubborn and continue sinning, then we have to die for our own sins instead of his sacrifice being there for us. Uh, let's go to Matthew 17 for a little bit and follow this thought up. Matthew 17. <clears throat> After six days, uh, Emmanuel took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them to the high mountain apart and was transfigured. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. And Moses and Elijah appeared talking with him. Now, this was a vision, as it will become clear down here. Moses and Elijah were not resurrected. Uh, this was a transfiguration. Then Peter said to him, Lord, is it good for us to be here? Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. They understood by then that there was going to be a resurrection, and in this vision it appeared that they were there. It was very real to them. So they thought, it must be Feast of Tabernacles time. Let's build some booths. If these guys, if these two people are here, because you have the trumpets with the first resurrection, followed therefore thereafter with Feast of Tabernacles. So while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. Now, they had been trained all their lives to listen to Moses, the law of Moses. And Moses was their hero from the past. So, with that training and background, they were brought into this vision to show that Christ was the central figure, not Moses. Listen to him. He is the primary teacher. Now, he's the one who inspired Moses. He's the one who caused Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. But Moses was not the key and central figure Christ was. So he's setting, he's, he's letting them know here <laughs> what the pecking order was. And with Moses and Elijah there, two of the notables from the past, Christ was still the central figure. And he brought up Moses and Elijah rather than somebody else for a purpose. You know, Daniel and Job were actually more righteous than Moses. That's what it says back there. Daniel and Job and... Who was the other one? It doesn't come to my mind anyway. But God did use Moses and Elijah in very powerful ways. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Emmanuel came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. I'm on your side. <laughs> and then they didn't see anybody there but him only. Moses and Elijah had disappeared. Well, Moses and Elijah of the past are dead, aren't they? But Christ is alive. So he is the one we look to. He is our mediator between us and the Father. 
And as they came down, he charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. So he hadn't died yet. He was going to die. And he said, This showed you that I am the key and the central figure. Don't you tell anybody about it until these events have occurred. And God has made it very clear by my resurrection who I am. He let them know ahead of time. Just like he's letting you and me know ahead of time. What a blessing this was to these disciples to know before the events occurred. And how wonderful it is that we know ahead. You know why I came to this area? I came because I had come to understand these scriptures back here that said to do it. That's why I came here. I didn't enjoy leaving Alaska one whit. And we we stopped as we moved out and looked at the mountains and blubbered tears more than once on the way out of there. But I felt that the work of God, for some reason, I needed to be in. Even though I really enjoyed being out of it for 12 years. I was going to church, but I wasn't a minister and I was happy with that. I could hunt and fish and work and do what I wanted to do. And I didn't have the responsibility or the weight or the accountability. Hey, that was (laughs) the life of Riley to me after being all those years with the weight and the responsibility. And here I was going back into it, kind of against my own wishes, really. And then I managed to get transferred to Colorado, and I was up on a mountaintop there nearly. Well, it was 14,000. We were at the 9,000 level on it, on the Continental Divide, looking down at that beautiful Arkansas River Valley. And I could walk among the trees, and my prayer place was a big log on the ground about this big around that I could lean across and pray. Man, that was nice. Walk the dogs every day up the mountain, or the dog, two. Yeah, we had two then. I didn't want to leave. But you know what? God had showed me that this is the place. I had to be here. You know what else? I can't leave. I have to be here. A, this is the place, and B, you're here. I can't leave the place, and I can't leave you. Not that I want to. Well, there's some days, maybe. (laughs) We're here for a reason. God's reasons. So he showed them what's going on here. Verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, What then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? They'd read that read there in Malachi. Oh, Elijah was going to come. And then they'd just seen him there. And Jesus answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. So God is going to send someone here at the end to restore all the things that have not yet been restored. Herbert Armstrong restored a lot, and then more needed to be, and shall be. 
He's, but I say to you, he's come already. And they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they desired. John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, which he makes clear. Uh, they understood then, he said, or he was speaking of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist did not restore all things. He was limited. His preaching was limited. His baptism was limited. He didn't restore all things. He paved the way for Christ. And the end time Elijah has to help pave the way for Christ as well, but must restore all things. This has to happen. So we need to know, at some point, who Moses and Elijah are that are spoken of there in Malachi 4. We need to know that. John Reitenbaugh wrote recently that before very long, God is going to have to start showing because he sees the world coming apart around him and he realizes this is going to happen fairly soon. It's getting close. I hope we are aware enough. I hope we are spiritually close enough to God that we'll be able to recognize where we need to be and how and what, the who, why, what, when, and how of everything. That's what we have to know. Because God is going to do that. He's going to make peace within the church. What does he say there in Haggai about the latter temple? In this place will I bring peace. Now, we are not at total peace yet, are we? Not even in this little congregation who have a lot of knowledge. But we are not totally at peace among ourselves. We have our little attitudes and rips and whatever. It's got to be peaceful. Now, that means when he comes to dwell with us, as he says he's going to do, there in Zechariah 2 and other places, he is going to bring peace in the latter temple. Now, we never really achieved peace in the worldwide church of God, did we? We were still a long ways from it as an organization and as local churches and families. We never achieved the kind of peace that God wants. And he tore it all apart. And now he's going to rebuild with a little less than 10%, about 10%. And he says, in this place, I'm going to make peace. Now, in order to do that, he's going to leave out 90% of those who claim to be church members. He's going to leave them out. And he's going to work with the ones that have the right heart, mind, and attitude that he can work with to create peace. That's the ones he's going to work with. So what he does is going to come at a cost. You know, he could gather everybody that ever warmed a chair in Worldwide that isn't yet dead together and try to make peace, and it wouldn't happen. So he's going to leave 90% out and say, I am going to select and cause to come those whom I select that have the right heart and attitude that I can work with to bring peace in this little church. Only 10% of what was left. 
probably seven, eight, ten thousand, twelve, whatever it is. That many he'll work with to achieve that kind of peace. He has to do it. He has to show this world a people living in peace, putting aside their attitudes, their own beliefs, their carnality, their vanity, their ego, their self-righteousness, and give them his righteousness, Isaiah 54, last verse. That's what he has to give in order to achieve it. But how can you send two ministers out to tell the world about peace if you don't have an example to show them? Somebody has to have done what was necessary to be at peace, is what they have to have done. And he is going to select those very carefully and stir them to come because those he can work with, the rest, he says, no, I can't do this with you. I can do it with these, and he will accomplish it. And then, when those go out, they can say, there's peace there, you're still at war. you got a government or governments that are iron and miry clay, and they're still fighting and can't get along with each other, they're all fighting for supremacy. But here we have a, pe- a people who have the real leader, Christ himself, whom they hate, and those prophets whom he's going to send out, whom they will hate, but they represent a people living together in harmony. And they can point at them and say, you could have this if you would get rid of your vanity and your ego and your climbing over each other for power. I'm trying to be a deacon or a deaconess or an elder or a minister or an evangelist or an apostle or whatever, like we had in Worldwide. Or a secretary of defense or a vice president or a president or whatever on the national level. Dog-eat-dog world. Corporate's the same. We're not going to have any of that. No jealousies. It's going to be put away. And we'll live together in total peace. We have to, to fulfill that prophecy. You know what? It's going to take some sacrifice and some repentance, some changing of attitudes, changing of things we think and say. That's why we're here today, you and me, learning that, doing our best to achieve it so much as lies within us, what that takes. I'm not quite done, am I? So, I say that Elias or Elijah's come already. They knew him not, but have done to him whatever they wished. Cut his head off. So, we face trouble if we obey God. We face trouble. John the Baptist was willing to have his head cut off for what he believed. We have to be willing to die for what we believe. And if we give our life, it will not be taken. But if we don't give it, it will be taken. So God's looking for that kind of people to use to bring peace in the latter temple. 
who are willing to give up their life for him. So at what price will peace come? Zechariah 14. Now, all but about a hundred million will have been killed by the time Zechariah 14 uh, comes to pass. Christ will have come. The first resurrection will be over. The temple of God, the Father and the Son being the temple of the New Jerusalem, will be here. And everyone on earth who is left will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But what if some don't? You're familiar with this. What if some don't? No rain, no water. They'll die if they don't come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So God says, you can't do your own thing. You can't be independent of me and that which I have established, his kingdom. There will be people within that kingdom who are still independent. And he says, no, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you aren't connected to me in the way that I want you connected, you'll get no rain. So get connected. <laughs> Stay connected. Otherwise, you wither and die. So he will achieve peace on earth in the millennium. But at what cost to those who resist what he wants done. What about those who run from it or ignore it or claim they're going to do their own thing? No, you're not going to do your own thing. You're going to do Christ's thing. A lot of people kid themselves that they're doing Christ's thing when they're doing their own thing. All of false religion, and we deceive ourselves sometimes that we're obeying God when we may not be. We have to be very, very, very careful. It's easy to deceive the self. Well, these people are going to suffer. James 4. James 4. And here I want verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enemy or enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It is very, very difficult to have friends who are in the world and be a friend of God. Because the world does not think like God thinks. There is enmity there. They naturally don't like the way of God. They will resist the way of God. If they see God in you in any way, they won't like it. They won't like you keeping Saturday. They won't like you keeping the feast. They won't like you not keeping Christmas and Easter and birthdays and Valentine's Days and all those things. If you refrain from it, they won't like it. What do you mean you're not coming to Christmas with us? What do you mean you're not coming to the birthday party? What do you mean you're doing this and doing that? So, if you're not like them and doing what they want, they won't like it. They'll resist you. 
And God weighs in on it right here. And he says, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. I don't even want to go near that, do you? I want to be as close to God's own people as I can get because they're at least trying to do what's right. And maybe their example of encouragement will help me do what's right. But if I get around people who are not following God, whether they're friends, family, or business associates, and hang out with them, they're going to pull me down. We've all tried it, haven't we? Tried to convert our relatives or our friends in the world? How'd it work for you? It didn't work so hot. <laughs> I'll guarantee you it didn't. Because God said it wouldn't and it won't. Hasn't and still don't, to use bad English. James 4 and verse 4 is an absolute truth. We need to be very careful in associating those who are still part of the world, and it doesn't matter who they are. That's God, not Daryl. Okay? That's the Apostle James saying that under inspiration. We'll go on down. Now, he says here, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. That asks the question, what does God do to his enemies? Now, he tells us to love our enemies, and we should love them and treat them as nicely as we can. But ultimately, if they're our enemy and we're serving God, they are enemies of God. So it would behoove us to look at what God has in mind for his enemies, what he intends to do. This, this uh, being peacemakers is kind of a multifaceted gemstone. <laughs> uh, it, it has a lot of facets. So we're about out of time, so let's stop right there with that question in mind. What does God do with his friends and what does God do with his enemies?